If you're helping an investor understand what drives your business, how your revenues, your earnings, your cash flows are going to move, there's always benefit to that. You're trying to help align what you believe the value of your business is and the outlook for your business with what investors are willing to underwrite. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Justin Sanders, a partner in our New York office, and one of our guests today. Justin co-leads our shareholder teardown team, bringing a private equity investor perspective to corporate clients. And he also founded our work helping clients prepare for and respond to activist investors. Justin is joined by Chantal Lorbeer, a partner in our Munich office, who advises global chemicals companies on their strategy, growth transformation, as well as their operating models and portfolio moves. Chantal co-leads our strategy and corporate finance practice in Germany, as well as our chemicals capital markets perspective globally. During our discussion today, we will cover why and how business leaders and CFOs in particular should try to see their businesses as their investors see them. We'll also build on the themes that Chantal and Justin recently presented on the topic of anticipating the investor perspective at our global CFO forum in London. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, thanks again for being here at the CFO Forum. Uh, I understand your session was uh, really well received and looking forward to talking with you a little bit about it right now and also about the client reactions that you've gotten uh, with the material. But just to kick us off, Justin, you can talk a little bit about this notion of what is an investor's perspective as it might differ from a CEO's perspective. Sure, absolutely. I think the core of an investor's perspective and how it differs from a CEO's perspective is at any point in time, an investor is thinking about, do I want to hold an investment in this business looking forward? Okay. History is something that will inform that investor's choice on whether to stay invested in the business or not. But they're going to be thinking about what's coming next, what's going forward. How do they think about forecasting the value they could get if they continue to invest in the business? In some ways, it's more dispassionate. It's more data-driven. It's less tied to necessarily choices, history, the social aspects that you might get in the executive room or the boardroom. Um, and, and therefore, they're really thinking, you know, do I want to keep my money in this business or do I want to put it somewhere else over time? And I think that just it, it, it raises the bar in terms of you know, data-driven and kind of in or out type decision-making in a dispassionate way that's sometimes harder to achieve when you're kind of operating a company day-to-day. Sure. It's a little more binary, if you will, right? Either you're going to hold it or not, or how long. Hold it or not, how long, and also what returns do you expect that you'll get from holding your investment in a business versus other alternatives that you might have, be it in that same sector or be it in another sector. Got it. Chantel, anything you want to add there? Yeah, I think what is important to understand is the CEO doesn't have much, I mean, choice in the role. So they (laughs) will will optimize the company and thinking about also coming from the legacy, how to take it forward. But investor, as as Justin just said, will always look from, okay, is the long-term value creation there? And is the company bold enough to make moves which are creating value in the long term? So what are the advantages of taking that investor mindset then? Is it that your stock price is going to go up? Is it that like what what are some of the things that you benefit from if you do this properly? Uh, one of the other reasons it's advantageous is in some ways investors are the customers of the CEO. They're choosing whether or not to be buyers of the company. 
Uh, and I'm not saying that that's a CEO's sole role. That's far from the case. One of many stakeholders. One right. of many stakeholders that they have to think about. And so it's the same way you would think about a product saying, really understand your customer. What are they looking for? What are they solving for? What are they choosing between? Taking that same perspective, thinking about your investor, is a really valuable way to say, what's the way in which they would evaluate this business? What's the way in which they would make that choice around whether to hold their investment, whether to release their investment? If you come at that with a customer's perspective, the investor's perspective, you're going to be in a much better position as an executive to solve for what those investors are looking for. And is there often a disconnect between the the CEO's perspective on value creation and what uh, an, an investor might be taking? I think they're often not exactly the same, not necessarily divergent. But investors can have a focus, as, as Chantal had mentioned earlier, on what is the long-term value creation potential of the business. Is management taking risks that they would that are the bold moves that are going to be required to generate returns? Are they credibly delivering on those risks? Are they being transparent about what's working and what's not? And so do they line up one to one? Frequently not. Are they terribly divergent? I'd say less often, um, but 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 that does that does come up some as well as as we heard in the discussions today. And how much of this is a communications or investor relations issue versus like truly making the bold moves? Because I, I guess at a, at a certain point you want to find your intrinsic investors, the ones that you know believe in what you're what you're um, what you're going for in terms of a strategy. I think the investor perspective can function as holding up the mirror to the CEO. You have a long term strategy, but sometimes you are in your own company. You hear a lot of your people's uh, statements, holding up the mirror saying, hey, actually, you should be doing this, or why aren't you doing this, or your costs have emerged higher than your peers. Have you looked at this recently helps to steer the direction, but also hearing it from the clients uh, today that treating investors properly and really getting the best out of the relationship, holding each other in a discussion over time, explaining the strategy and how long-term value is created beyond the earnings call mm-hmm. is something which creates uh, a good discussion and value itself. I think I'd echo the same sentiment that's come from conversations today and, and, and conversations with my own clients recently, that the idea that the investors are going to look at facts and say, are we seeing the story we're hearing translating into results? There's show me stories and there's tell me stories. And this is looking for the show me story. And when those line up, there's transparent communication. You say, here's what's going on. Here are the results. Here's what we've demonstrated that shows that the strategy or the operations program, the productivity program, the overall transformation program that a company is working on is having the intended impact. That leads to a really great conversation where you see it sometimes go awry is, the story that says we're working on something, an investor can't see impact, and so we'll have more questions and really try to understand. There's a healthy tension there, but you want to make sure that as a you know, public corporation that you're communicating enough about where impact is coming from that an investor can see it. What are some of the ways as a CFO, how do you bridge that? Maybe it's not a gap, but sort of the two perspectives between the CEO's thoughts about how the company is creating value and what the outside market investors are looking at. 
I think nowadays there's so much data available outside in through web crawling, artificial intelligence and so on. So it has become much more sophisticated what you can get outside in. And I think the CFO has a strategic role between the CEO who has a strategic direction, but also the investor department or so, which are sometimes a bit focused on the day-to-day hours from the sell-side analysts in the call. So it's basically one of my clients we've been working with, uh, the new incoming CFO, had to go through a lot of change management to resist the fact of answering all the nitty-gritty questions in the earnings calls, but really making this a value-adding time for everyone, for the investors to join, to explain how the long-term strategy is implemented, as you say, what are the proof points it's happening, rather than just reacting on short-term uh, moves in the industry. Yeah, and, and I think there's a, the, the CFO in particular plays an even more important role given this dynamic. There is so much information out there. As an example, if we want to look at a company as, you know, as we think about what their agenda should look like, in the course of a couple of days, we can ingest customer feedback from 80,000 websites, synthesize it, and say, here's where you're strong and where you're weak. That didn't exist wow. five years ago, those right. type of capabilities. Right. I think what this does is it puts the CFO in a role where they can really play the translator role. Mm-hmm. Because at some point, the information in the public sphere is triggering good conversations. At the end of the day, investors still think about a company as a financial investment. And someone has to say, how do those pieces of data on what's going on in customer markets, what's going on in terms of the workforce, um, what of the relevant ESG themes matter for one company versus not? The CFO can translate all of that and say, well, how is that going to lead to different results? And what does that mean in terms of priorities operationally and financially that the company could follow? Taking on that role as the translator between all the information that's out there and what the executive team really needs to focus on and think about doing and investing behind themselves, that's an even more critical role now than it was a few years ago just because there's so much more information to process. Sure. So if you're a CFO, do you, like in an ideal world, would you have somebody on your financial planning and analysis team who is charged with taking that outside in view? Or how, how do you actually execute that? I've seen it executed in a handful of ways, whether it's one individual, a small team, um, the the use of advisors. What's important is saying you're going to have a perspective. um, And does that mean you have to update it every month or every quarter? No. But at any point in time, you have a perspective on what information is out there that is shaping how an investor would think about the growth outlook for your business, growth headwinds for your business, margin Opportunity, or again, margin headwinds, capital intensity, um, especially as we see you know, heavy industrial companies, as an example, faced with you know the growing trend of decarbonization. That's even more a question as well. And so, you know, making sure that somebody is kind of keeping that perspective and keeping their CFO well informed sure. is really critical. And are there um, situations where you sort of set that first perspective, and then you set trigger points for here are things that might happen? exogenous to the company that I need to keep an eye on, or even inside the company that may be things that would cause that outside investor to rethink what the investment thesis would be. Yeah. 
I mean, I think it's very different for every different industry, but we have looked at an industrial player who was very much dependent on oil price, but also on some regulatory decisions, on decisions how carbon tax is going to be applied. And I think every uh, company should look at a model. What would they depend on structurally and monitor these um, yeah, events and effects which... Yeah, which affect the company, and I think that's actually you know what investors have been doing when they think about the outlook for a company for some time. And I, I love Chantal's example of uh, oil and gas, just because it's such a visible cycle that you can look at. And as I've done this analysis with you know companies that supply equipment into the oil and gas world, I'm picking this as just an example because it's so tangible. What you look at is if you pick any point in time, you can see big swings in what expectations are underwritten in, in a company's valuation, right. right? And so when you see you know companies that supply oil and gas equipment at the peak of you know oil prices, and you look at what's priced in, well, you see that expectations that prices are going to come down, and therefore equipment purchases are going to slow, right. and you're going to get operating deleverage as your factories aren't shipping as many units. Right. That sounds very operational, but investors get that that's what's going to happen, and so they think about, well, where are we in the cycle? Do I have continued tailwinds? Do yeah. I have some upcoming headwinds? And they forecast that going forward. Say, so what am I willing to underwrite as I make an investment in a business? And so, knowing what those drivers of your business are, what those trigger points look like is a really valuable way to say, am I just trying to get my share price to go up yeah. or am I trying to understand that investor sees a different outlook than you know, straight growth because right. they're understanding something about you know, the markets that I'm exposed to. That's really powerful right? because sure. it can help you unlock what should be your priorities and also what, what the general market expects your business to do as conditions change. Yeah, and, and maybe if I can add to that, I think it's also helping investors sometimes to clarify some of these trends. If I take an example from the chemical industry, petrochemicals, which is very close to oil and gas, investors understand the cyclicality, it's clear, it will go up and down uh, depending on many factors, including oil price. But if you see volatility in specialty chemical companies, that's a whole different story. Investors don't understand that. So you also help your investors and your company to actually understand why there's suddenly cyclicality to explain those factors behind. So there's a little bit of an educational component to this as well in terms of... There should always be a little bit of an educational component. Um, and I think there's a, there's a fine line between just storytelling and education. But if you're helping an investor understand what drives your business, how your revenues, your earnings, your cash flows are going to move, there's always benefit to that. You're trying to help align what you believe the value of your business is and the outlook for your business with what investors are willing to underwrite. Awesome. So let's talk a little bit about this notion of taking specifically a private equity investor perspective. You see a lot of private equity companies purchase publicly held companies and they have to have a very, very sharp perspective. What are some of the things that private equity investors might do in terms of developing that investor perspective? And is there anything that might then apply for a CFO of a publicly held company that they should be trying to think about? Not so much to make themselves appealing for PE, but just to sort of understand that's another group of investors that may hold an interest in, in their business. 
Sure. I think there's there's sort of four steps that we talked about in the session uh, that, that that we ran this week. And you know, I think it kind of starts with saying one, you're gonna connect the strategic outlook to for your business to uh, actions and 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 the value of the business today. You know, the second step would be to say, well, well then kind of understand you know, what the return expectations are for an investor. You know, three would then be to look at benchmarks and say, you know, where operationally could you do more? Right? Could you, you know, capture headroom that the business has? And then four, turn that into real tangible actions that are going to drive cash flows. And and the reason I go back to that framing is if you think about a private equity investor with a time horizon, they're trying to really increase the value of a company by taking a specific set of operating actions. Depending on the nature of the investor, the specific investment they're making, that might be around driving growth and capturing the operating leverage that comes from that growth as a way to grow the earnings and the cash flows of the business. It may have to do with finding efficiencies in core operations, right, or in the organizational structure of a company. It may have to do with being uh, with with kind of sweating your assets, using capital more effectively, uh, and finding ways to increase throughput out of existing footprint. Be more efficient with what you have versus having to spend more. These are all tools that are going to you know help increase the cash flow of the company. And, and I think the 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 difference between what you see in probably the typical public markets is a, is an investor whose decision is: Do I want to hold? Do I want to buy more? Do I want to sell? You know, some of my exposure in a company. By nature, that's slightly more passive, well informed, yes, yes, but passive. passive. In the event of a, a controlling interest like a private equity investor, they're saying we want to actually see a company take some actions to capture headroom that's kind of untapped right now. And therefore, the focus on those actions, the amount of granularity that's going behind that investment thesis, it, it, it's quite high. Uh, and, and therefore, those the, you know, the, the typical private equity investor is going in with not just an investment thesis, but a plan on how to execute, to execute that investment thesis capture. so they can capture value. And they incentivize a management team heavily on that, right? And it's really a focus also on the talent to make that happen, which I think could also create more trust for intrinsic investors in, in companies if they would do that more thoroughly as well. Sure. And, and Sean, maybe I'd come back because I think you had two parts to your question. One is kind of what is that perspective of a private equity investor? And the second was if you're a CFO, what can you, what can you learn from this? And if you think about what we're describing, there's, there's nothing in those kind of four steps, right, that, that the CFO of a company can't do on their own. Right, and that's what we encourage, and it was a lot of the conversation over the last uh, over the last couple of days here. Um, just encouraging our clients to take that hard look at their own business and say, if it was my money, if I was you know, if I was investing in and in taking this company private, what would I do to generate twenty percent rates of return and higher? Right, which is high when you think yeah. about a typical you yeah. know, public equity return, yeah. but not so high when you think about what private equity, equity investors strive for. Sure. And so just bringing a little bit of that perspective and saying, how can I get really sharp on what's going to deliver the most value from my business is a really useful exercise to help focus and prioritize and drive the right cadence on operational improvements that will matter. 
And I think what some CFOs are still struggling with to at least get into the organization is strategic capital allocation. Very often, okay. historically, you have invested in all business the same because yeah. they are also powerful leaders. And um, private equity companies are much better or tend to uh, focus capital where they really see growth and also take it away from businesses where they don't see it or parts of the businesses. And I think that is something we've been discussing a lot in the last few days. Awesome. Let, any case examples that you can share of the power of taking this approach in terms of what this can do to focus a CFO, CEO, and executive team on those levers that create the most value? Because I think any CEO and CFO would say, you know, we're trying to create as much value for stakeholders as possible. But is there a way to sort of make this a little bit more tangible in terms of your experience working with clients? You'd mentioned a 20% return as an example, Justin. Yeah, so I, I've seen it in a few contexts, and everyone is different, so I'm, I'm, I'm always a little bit uh, reluctant sure. to, to ex- extrapolate a rule from, from, from a single example. But I'm now thinking about this across maybe a dozen different situations. Okay. There's, there's a thread that I think is consistent. There's, in almost every situation, we like our clients and like most investors, start with a thesis. Um, I might even say a hypothesis, Hypothesis, not yet a formed thesis, but a hypothesis on where the 20% level of return is going to come from. And what I would say is that the importance of being holistic in testing that thesis is critical. And the pattern that, uh, that I see that's consistent is even in situations where our mathematics, our arithmetic would tell us growth is going to be the answer. It's usually not just growth. We see there's a growth opportunity, but the operating leverage you can capture from that growth that leads to margin expansion ends up being even more valuable, which you may not intuitively look at going in, right? I'll I'll take whatever growth I can get might be the mindset, but by being holistic and saying, well, let's really think about where is it going to come from? How are we going to generate growth? And is it just growth or is it growth that is getting me more output from my facilities, allowing me to get more leverage on all the fixed costs I have as a company that allows you to accelerate your earnings growth up into those, you know, those, those double digits level of numbers. And then I see the inverse as well. It's, it's pretty easy to look at benchmarks on costs and just say, you know, if a company is in the bottom quartile of margins in its industry, that there's a margin improvement opportunity. Absolutely. That na- that naturally leads you towards where can I take out costs, which is almost always a driver in those situations. Mm-hmm. But looking at that in absence of saying, well, where can I also get leverage? Yes. Right. Yeah. Operating leverage, yeah. that is, yeah. uh, from the business. And, and that's where, where is growth? Right. In what parts of the business is growth going to contribute? That's what's really important. I think it ties back nicely to what Chantal was saying around strategic capital allocation. Because what we're talking about is taking a holistic view of a business and understanding where you want to drive different type of operational improvements. That's probably the most common thread between situations where we've kind of seen really big value unlocks in businesses. Awesome. Yes. Maybe to add one more uh, flag, like we have... Uh, also work with companies who are actually really good right now. Okay. So it's Already always performing very exactly well. right. They yeah, are yeah. the number one player in their industry segment, right? And and you 
you would tend to say, well, we are actually doing well. But then if you look at the investor perspective and figure out, okay, the growth and the profitable growth, which is baked in in the current share price, is actually very challenging to achieve going forward. Because if a company is already large, number one player, where is all that profitable growth going to come from? Right. So there is often a challenge to say, just because you're good right now, it doesn't mean you are good in the future. So what are the numbers really implied in your share price? And where is that absolute EBITDA going to come from? It's also a good question we've been asked recently. And, and I think that that even brings us to, a, to a, a, a catchy catchphrase, if you will. But the companies, and when, when we deal with the leading player yes. and have these conversations, you know, what we observe, and, and I would give credit to those leading players the way they think, is they're hunting for headroom. Where is that next opportunity sure. coming from? Sure. And keeping a really active view on where is there more headroom to go after? Not just how do we run the same playbook we've always run. Right. That really is a big differentiator uh, between those that can maintain outperformance over a long period of time and those who you know are, are high performers for a period and stagnate. What are some of the barriers to taking this approach, and and how do you overcome them? I, I think maybe the biggest barrier is the classic one. The hardest part is getting started. Mm. And and I and I say that because you know of, of two hard to balance factors. As we mentioned earlier, the amount of data to process and the number of questions to answer can be overwhelming. Sure. You know, for even a yeah. for even a talented executive. And taking an investor's mindset, really taking an investor's mindset where you are sleuthing out what matters and what doesn't. Right. And testing and building and refining your investment thesis so that you have a clear perspective on the answer. Those are those are two separately. Those are both challenges. Right. Put them together, and it's it's hard to get started or nowhere to get started. Um, the important thing is to start, and 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 anyone can get better as they do this over time. As as you know, I think we have as a firm, as we've learned to ingest more data, recognize patterns, understand implications. It it, it takes time to hone those skills, and so getting started versus waiting for perfection is, I think, the barrier that that the most successful businesses overcome. And a very practical tip is we've seen successful CFOs doing that in an offsite, just oh, to okay. <laughs> take time out of this daily interactions and, and daily challenges to really do it, shut down your laptops for a few minutes or half a day and really think about it. Awesome. This has been really, uh, really fun and enlightening and I appreciate you both taking the time. Thanks again and looking forward to continuing the conversation. Uh, likewise. Thanks for having us. Thank you. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Or you can share your ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast player. Thank you to all our listeners who've already reached out and rated and reviewed our podcast. We really appreciate all of your comments and feedback. Please keep them coming. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes, we encourage you to subscribe on your podcast player where you can also access our entire library of previous episodes. You can also visit our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, which includes written transcripts of more than 120 past episodes. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our Practice Insights page on mckinsey.com slash SCF, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, 
or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.